This episode is sponsored by Lens Protocol. Lens lets you own your own social media presence, easily monetize your content, and carry your social graph with you wherever you go. That means you, the creator, can focus on creating without ever having to worry about losing access to your account or having to build a new following again. Lens also lets you engage more closely with your fans, directly monetize your work, and if you're a dev, easily spin up a new app with Lens's full suite of developer tools. Lens Protocol is the social layer of Web3. Join the waitlist at waitlist.lens.xyz for the last social media handle you'll ever need. Hey everyone, welcome back to Rehash, a Web3 podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and today we're speaking with a fellow podcaster, Nick Hollins, creator of the UFO podcast and co-founder of Apollo, the creative lab that produces UFO. The creator economy has grown in leaps and bounds since the early 2000s with the introduction of blogging to YouTube's emergence, followed by social media and influencer marketing. The more recent implementation of blockchain technology, cryptography, and what we now see as the overarching Web3 space to the creator economy has introduced a plethora of new funding and ownership tools that we never saw before. Creators are now able to directly own and monetize their works, tokenize their intellectual property rights, share revenue with co-creators and collaborators transparently, automate payments, engage with their fans more meaningfully, and so much more. Our guest, Nick, comes from a traditional broadcast radio background and now uses a lot of his learnings from that world to build out UFO, which is aspiring to be an on-chain radio and club for creators and consumers of media. He has so many great insights on the state of the current creator economy and where he hopes to see it evolve in the future. We somehow end up talking about life in Australia, where he's from, and whether the media depictions of all the snakes and spiders and other poisonous creatures being everywhere in Australia is accurate or not. I learned that koalas are not as dangerous as I thought they were, and kangaroos are perhaps more dangerous than I thought, and that snakes and spiders are indeed everywhere outside of major cities, and you should rest assured as long as you don't have a snake in your yard that's capable of luring your children and pets outside and eating them. In case you can't tell, I was slightly traumatized by this. Anyway, if you're a creator or creator-adjacent person or interested in the creator economy at all, I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Make sure you also check out Nick's podcast, UFO, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe and review Rehash as well. I read every single review on Apple, and it means so much to me to hear your positive feedback Not to mention it helps the public more easily be able to discover the podcast with each review you leave. Nick was nominated by Karsten and voted onto the podcast by Kabuki, Steph Linsug, and Karsten. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with Nick. Hey, Nick, welcome to the podcast. So happy to have you today. Yeah, I'm so glad to join. I appreciate the DAO's invitation. Of course, we can talk a little bit about that more later, but you are actually the point of quite a bit of drama with the joke race this season and getting you on the podcast wasn't as smooth 
of a process as people might think with just some votes. So we'll talk about that in a second when we dive into some more things about governance. But today we're talking all about Web3 and the creator economy in general. And you're the perfect person to talk to about that because we're also the host of a Web3 podcast called UFO. And you have your head completely in this Web3 creator space, working a lot with artists and musicians and other types of media folks. So I'm excited to get your take on what's going on in the space right now. To start with, I just love to hear what have you seen as some of the most exciting projects or protocols in the Web3 ecosystem that are specifically designed to empower creators? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say like Lens Protocol was a huge one for myself. The projects and protocols that we're interested in, we've been actively building with UFO since the jump. So we launched in September, which we were chatting before, I think was a few months or more after Rehash got started. Rehash has a really low ID on Lens as an early mover on there. But yeah, I super appreciate what Lens is doing as far as the Web3 social space and the open social protocol is such a powerful idea. And so all these apps being built across it and all these different experiments and small dev teams and projects that are actually building in collaboration with creators who are actively asking for things and recommending features and they're all being built out. So the experimental space there between those actors is producing some really great stuff that I think is exciting for music projects, for art, for media, all types of different things. And then other things that we're we've been using with UFO since the beginning is publishing on Mira. Obviously like Mira is a real leading platform for these types of things. Zora as well, I think with the launch of the Zora network as a kind of L2 option on optimism is unlocking a lot of things. And then other tools like Bonfire and stuff like this is really cool. So yeah, I, I feel like these different things playing together and as far as how we're building UFO, is building across platforms, I would say. So it's like creating a community and a media project or network that publishes in all these different places and is kind of brought together by a website, which is a central point between all of those things. Also very interested in what Forefront is doing and Steph from Vessel and Broadcast doing really great things. So yeah, a lot happening. So a lot of the tools that you mentioned in this Web3 Creator Toolkit are tools that are basically what we already have in Web2, but with a Web3 parallel. So for example, LensTube is a Web3 parallel to YouTube. Are there any Web3 tools you've come across for creators that you think are completely new and innovative to just the Web3 space? Yeah, I, th I think this question kind of points to the actual, if you like to say, the on-chain media assets themselves, the nature of the works that are being created is the unlock here. So even if it's like LensTube, which is kind of a parallel for YouTube, the fact that you're minting these videos on-chain or wherever you're minting your NFTs or in, in whatever use case, and the fact that now you can essentially have a collector base it's almost like a subscriber base of your collectors and that nfts can now act like keys to access to future things or so i can say everybody who has collected my videos on lens tube or whatever it might be now i can kind of make other things available to you or whatever it is so i feel like the fact that that has shifted unlocks all kinds of interesting opportunities and now lens protocol v2 was just announced as well which kind of has a bunch of new features that people can build out with i feel it's like it's taken the ability to publish media i always think of it in terms of printing magazines like decades ago or 
I'm building an on-chain radio station now with UFO. So I'm always kind of thinking these old media forms and then translating it into the new and seeing what we can do when we start experimenting with things. But I quite like thinking of, say, mirror collects or posts on Lens or NFTs on Zora and stuff in terms of printing a magazine years ago, except now everybody who buys the magazine can represent that on their Web3 social profile. Before, if, I, if I'm buying a magazine, no one knows I'm buying that. But now I can represent it online of like, I'm into these things. And so the fact that I can, within a Web3 social graph, discover media and art and music through going on my friends' profiles, seeing what they're collecting or seeing what the trending thing is, I think that's the way that the Web3 ecosystem is kind of an evolution from what was here before on Web2 in terms of discoverability uh, and sharing things with each other, which is great because the whole Web2 thing is kind of based on these algorithms. And as we know, they shift and change so much. So for me as a creator, how do I reliably get myself out there to the people who want to see it and have enjoyed it in the past? So I feel like Web3 is starting to open up new ways of doing stuff that makes that a little more reliable. And not only are people collecting your media as it's happening, you can also use these things as primitives to build out your community as well and connect your community with others and that kind of thing. So I feel like that's the big story. I think that's definitely one of the most exciting things about this space, but I think it's also one of the biggest challenges that creators face right now is with distribution. And w at least from what I've seen, most Web3 creators are still on traditional Web2 platforms like Instagram and TikTok and things like that, because we still rely on those platforms for distribution and reach. And I think discoverability with Web3 tooling right now is still lacking a little bit. I'm curious to hear from your perspective, what tools you think are still missing from the Web3 creator toolkit that would be really beneficial for creators to have? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I suppose it's kind of like what's at the edges, like in the in the design space, like what are we trying to solve? And I guess I'm trying to think like music is a really good example. And so we're looking at discoverability and getting your stuff out there. And so therefore you're publishing on Instagram and Twitter, or maybe TikTok, and your songs are going up on Spotify or I suppose Apple or, or whatever it is, or Bandcamp or all these kind of Web2 solutions and things. So I suppose a smooth way to invite your existing audience across into Web3 is a really crucial piece of it all. I know like REC, for instance, a music artist who was early in creating NFTs. I've heard stories from like when he was doing that a few years ago, it was, hey, I've started to mint my NFTs. So I'm going to go to everyone that's bought my records before on Bandcamp and I had their email email everybody and go, hey, you can go claim a free NFT if you like. So enabling like as smooth a transition as possible, a kind of onboarding experience for people who aren't in Web3 to, to come across. A lot of artists and creatives in Web3, potentially they're native to this ecosystem. So their audience that they've built up is entirely in crypto anyway. But for other artists and creatives, it's, it's this thing of they're kind of needing to bring their audience with them. And so making that as smooth as possible. And I kind of like this idea that Web3 Social is going to be the sort of palatable, recognizable, understandable kind of thing that people can latch onto. I mean, if you see people jumping onto threads or Blue Sky or any of these things like, oh, okay, a new social media, I'll jump, jump in and claim my handle. So yeah, I think it's a lot of that, that kind of thing, like making it possible for people to jump in and get to know the space. From the creator side, have you seen any 
innovative ways for creators to incentivize and reward their fans, even in kind of more of a tiered way, like rewarding their most engaged fans in a certain way that goes beyond just the basic token model that we've seen, like anything really creative and outside of the box that you've seen. Mm, I'm trying to think, I mean, there's some interesting stuff happening in music. I was just chatting with my friends from, from Wave World, like Karma and, and Violetta, and they've just launched something called the Wave Game, which is pretty neat. And so they're looking to kind of skirt this thing where they have tiered things. So the idea is that a musician can kind of bring this thing, offer NFTs in these various tiers. And if collectors are really into that thing, they can sort of buy enough NFTs to unlock different levels, which goes all the way up to performance with that artist or all this type of stuff. I feel like people are sort of exploring that space. It also feels like something that we've been talking about for a few years of kind of like, oh, okay, like artist fan relationship. How can you make this kind of like a fan club and give them, give them gifts and prizes and, and all that kind of stuff, which I guess kind of makes sense. But, you know, I was also talking with uh, Kabuki, who I know has been on the show here on Rehash before. And as he was saying, this idea of, okay, now we can mint NFTs and it's kind of the same as go download my song on iTunes from, from a decade ago. And it's kind of that, that's maybe not the most interesting thing to do here is like, we shift from go buy my song on Bandcamp or iTunes. Now you can buy it as an NFT as Kabuki was saying, okay, but so what? That's great. But it's still this relationship of please go buy my music so I can make some make some amount of income so that I can focus on my creative works and then put out more music in the future. So it's still this kind of like a patronage kind of model, but I'm really interested in things that kind of evolve beyond that. Yes, let's do that. That's still great. And I think one of the most interesting things for sort of on-chain media and, and art and creative projects is like now that you can make things that are like free or really low price mints, but if a thousand people are supporting your stuff for 50 cents or a dollar a time, that's quite sustaining for a lot of projects. So that's still really powerful. But what does it look like when we start to open it up? And Kabuki's doing, for instance, he can put out a beat tape and anyone who, who mints that NFT now has a license to go and remix that sound however, however they like to make their own derivative works. And all these kinds of ideas I find really interesting and very sort of internet culture and remix culture, which I, I think is cool and feels inevitable. That's what the internet does. I've asked a few different guests on the podcast this question, but from your perspective, why do you think people are collecting NFTs? Like any kind of media NFT, music NFTs, podcast NFTs, writing NFTs. Why do you think is like the primary reason or reasons why people are collecting these today? Yeah, super interesting. I think a lot of it is, I mean, social signaling is a part of it. I'm into this. I like this, even if it's like a free mint, a free collect. So the kind of social signaling of this is what I'm into, which I guess is very Web3 native and in our kind of core communities and, and stuff like that. I certainly like collecting things on Mira. If I read a piece, I mean, like I love Mira anyway, like the pieces there, it's like someone puts a lot of thought and attention into a thing, presents like often really new innovative ideas or sharing their projects, or it's a deep dive essay and research into different things. I also was an early member at like Water and Music, well, not early, but when they, when they started launching NFTs for their community and stuff. So for me, I'm always down to support those kinds of things. But I'm like, yeah, I'm down with this project. I'm going to mint this. And I'm kind of minting these things with no expectation of financial upside or return. I'm just like, yes, I support that. I'd love to see that happen. I like those 
people who are doing that. But then the next step, or possibly the number one, is like speculation in general. So I'm saying like, I'm not collecting things for speculation most of the time, it feels like. Like I'm collecting things genuinely to collect it and to support those creators in what they're doing. But I mean, it's crypto. So like speculation is kind of the number one. And we've had the whole kind of come down off the 2021 like NFT mania that was happening. And so the space has gone through a bunch of really interesting evolutions and things. And we see that with like, say royalties being driven to zero between OpenSea and Blur and, and all that kind of stuff. So we've kind of experienced a bit of a race to the bottom. Then you have the open edition kind of meta and people running with that and experimenting with that. So it's kind of wild speculation, but we've also seen a bunch of open editions where people like very quickly secondary is below mint price, even if that price is very low. So it's like people are speculating on stuff. And if teams have plans, like Jack Butcher is a good example of they kind of do have plans to kind of run on next in what they're doing and other nft projects like a math castles or terraforms and and all that kind of stuff so these kind of deeper art projects they do have plans for how things can kind of build out into the future so yeah i'd say i'd say it's a bit of a mixed bag so what we we're talking about speculation social signaling it can also be like access to things so not even speculation it's like i'm collecting this because then that gives me access to the next thing and the next thing or whatever that might be. So kind of the notion to join a club and to connect with others and to kind of be a part of things and build collaboratively, it feels like that's another big motivator. And certainly I, I quite like projects that kind of skew in that direction. I think that also goes to show that the incentives that we talk about don't always have to be financial. I think a lot of times when we talk about incentives, we just our mind automatically goes to financial incentive. If I buy this music NFT, will this artist blow up in the future? Will I be able to sell this in a year and 10x what I paid for this song in a year? These aren't necessarily the questions that people are asking right now. I think Upside can be access to various things, maybe my merch, maybe my shows, maybe you get to help actually curate my next album for me. Like the ways there are infinite ways that artists and creators can experiment with this incentive model that I still think we're in the very early days of that. And I think there's huge potential in that area of this is the utility. People are always like NFTs have no utility. But this is the utility. The utility is governance. The utility is the ownership in the thing, whatever that might mean for each creator individually. But I think that's, in my mind, sort of like the more untapped thing. And I, I do think it's great that people are collecting media NFTs right now to support their favorite creators. I think that's huge, honestly, because even the fact that people would do that, you can consume music for free on Spotify or Apple or anywhere. And so for people to really make that effort to support an artist, even in whatever small financial way, I, I think that's huge. And I do want to see more of that. But I also think creators by experimenting more with these different ways of incentivizing their fans, I think there can be so much more potential there as well. Yeah, I totally agree with that. 
And the utility conversation is kind of hilarious depending on like the frame that we're putting it in, but it's like, what was the utility of buying CDs or buying magazines or, or stuff like this in, in the past? And I guess it was, there was no other way to read that content and I had to buy CDs because that's how I listen to it or, or whatever it is. The statistics are kind of crazy as far as like on Spotify, this is a made up number, but it's something like 10 million songs are uploaded a month. It's something ludicrous. And then within that it's i've got none of the numbers now i'm already i'm feeling that float away but it's it's really high it's, it's something like 70 or 80 percent have zero streams basically so there's like an insane overabundance of content online in music in any and every form and also in the sort of web 2 realm like we don't have that much control over our lived environment on the internet and what we can access. There's things that will never be shown to you, starting your social graph, the algorithms moving in one way or another. So the fact that within Web3, if you're collecting works by a given artist, let's say a musician, that kind of gets you an invite into their community. You can meet friends, connect with other people, that brings all of their works onto your radar as well. So it's kind of, it's very internet culture. You can kind of explore and dig and find things in that realm. And I have conversations with artists who talk about friends they've made who initially just collected their works, then they get to know each other and all that kind of thing. So the utility is a friendship potentially as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Friendship is definitely a potential utility that comes out of that. When it comes to community building in the Web3 space, do you think that Web3 makes community building easier or harder? It could be easier because it's easier for creators to connect with their fans. It's easier for fans to connect with other fans. But on the other hand, whenever you do introduce these financial elements, it can make relationships feel a little more transactional, as I'm sure we've all experienced in the workplace or in whatever setting. And so when we're introducing these incentives, even if they're not financial, like we were just talking about, there's plenty of ways to incentivize your fans that are non-financial in nature. But if you are introducing these potentially financial incentives into the mix, do you think that that can be damaging to the creator-fan relationship? And if so, what advice do you have for creators to strike that balance of using these tools to connect better with their fans without making it awkward or feel a little transactional that there's some sort of financial reward potentially involved? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's about being intentional about what you're doing and having a bit of a logic or a purpose behind what you're creating. And I agree, this sort of over focus on financialized aspects of things can be damaging depending on what you're trying to build. We've seen that many, many times. If you want to go out and offer an open edition, say mint this and you're like hinting at some kind of airdrop or windfall that's going to follow from that, you're going to attract airdrop farmers and, and all that kind of thing. And let's assume you're looking to build a community around your creative practice or a collective of your friends or a kind of longer term relationship like most say musicians or, or artists or creators are, are looking to do. So yeah, I think you need to be really careful about that kind of stuff because yeah, you can get those kind of vanity numbers if you like a large number of followers or a large number of people that have collected or minted an NFT. But if you've done that on a kind of shady basis or a sort of duplicitous wink at something that you can never actually bring through or it's sort of getting back to straight up crypto NFT hype 
type stuff and it feels like the worst aspect of that kind of community building is come and join the discord and grind away and say gm every day for a year and hopefully you'll get an allow list i don't know if that's still happening but 2021 22 there was a lot of that kind of thing that was going on that always felt really gross and not what we're here for necessarily rafa the builder as well a friend of mine who's a a founder of folklore really interesting project and rafa's one of my favorite thinkers about community building and and stuff like this. And he talks about these sort of levels of intimacy with your project or with your brand or with your community. And I think that kind of thinking is really valuable. Ideally, you want to create the opportunity for for people to join if they're interested in your project. So you kind of want to have a tier that's like free and open and everyone can join. But if people are a little more interested or they want to engage or straight up join your community or contribute, potentially there's bounties that they can do or their project can be recognized or you can kind of have community meetups and the weekly call like Song Camp do this really well with their famous heartbeat calls and, and stuff like that. So yeah, I think like being intentional about what your community is for and it's people's time and attention online as well. And you're competing with literally everything on the internet, right? So ideally you're offering something that's like valuable and purposeful for people's time on this earth. So I feel like coming with that that frame is, is helpful and respectful. I think that's really good advice for creators, especially as the space is constantly changing and evolving. When you think about creators who are just trying to enter into the Web3 space, what do you think are the most important skills that they develop in order to thrive in this space? Keeping in mind, not just how the space is today, but that the space is changing and evolving so fast. Are there any long-lasting skills that you think it's really important for creators that want to be on Web3 to develop? That's a really interesting question. I guess a lot of it is, I mean, doing your own research sort of pops to mind. So kind of keeping on top of what's happening in whatever way is best suited to you. So kind of your skills in processing information and accessing it and being able to find the stuff that's relevant and and purposeful for for what you're doing is really key. And certainly I find that in my experience, reading a lot, listening to things and keeping up with like new trends or whatever it might be, that feels like a really key piece. And something that I hear from people that are like just joining crypto is to say, oh, what do I do? How do I set up a wallet or what YouTube channels do I go to? And very often people stumble into not helpful YouTube channels or you know what I mean? Let's say there are crypto channels that are really focused on financial speculation or what price and what tokens are doing. If you're a creator in the space, maybe that's not the most relevant stuff for you to pay attention to in the beginning. So yeah, your ability to research and connecting with others, skills of collaboration as well, and kind of joining like relevant communities for what you're doing. Web3 is a very collaborative space. So being able to meet up with others and connect and potentially collaborate with each other, build together are all really helpful kind of mental constructs, I suppose. So these values of Web3 and like building in the open or interoperable, composable, kind of like we're building with these like Lego blocks that are kind of open for a reason. So coming with that frame or understanding, I feel is also really helpful. And then as far as like other skills and involved with being a creator, there's a lot of content creation involved potentially as well. So developing skills and communicating your ideas and being clear about stuff. And if you need to collaborate with friends who've already been in the space for a minute or learning together, that can also be really helpful too. Like sort of clearly communicating what you're doing, 
what it's all about, making it easy for people to understand. I'm just thinking of it now, but if it's as much as, well, I minted my NFT here and then I tweet about it or I share my NFT on Instagram, you might not get that much traction happening. If that's all you're doing, it maybe takes another couple of steps. You mentioned a few challenges with creators entering the space, like basic challenges of even setting up a wallet, figuring out how to connect to all of these decentralized apps and things like that. What do you see as the biggest barriers to entry for creators that want to participate in these Web3 creator models and platforms? Would you say that's it is just onboarding or are there other challenges that you see as well? Yeah, it's, I, I guess that's a really big one. Onboarding and it takes some reading, if you like, like initially to kind of get across things and get to understand it. And so setting up a wallet and getting an understanding of what it is and how to kind of take care of your own security and sovereignty. Essentially, if you send a wrong transaction or you send something to the, to the burn address, like no one can help you. That's what it is. There's no support line for crypto a lot of times. So, I mean, yeah. The onboarding curve on the way in is probably a huge challenge. Beyond the rest of that is being able to avoid scams or getting hacked or all that kind of thing. So like really being mindful about your security and understanding the technology to a certain extent is all super crucial. And beyond that, I guess it's also kind of getting to know the, the culture and the feel in the space. So if you're going to come out and create your first NFT and put it up for sale at 20 ETH, that maybe doesn't make sense. So kind of getting a sense of, of how things work and, and what it is is also super helpful. You can work for yourself without doing it by yourself. As a freelancer or independent worker, you're constantly engaging your network and updating your professional profile, but the tools we use to do this haven't evolved in the last 20 years. Quest makes it easier than ever to gather support for a new idea, broadcast updates to your network, and showcase your best work on your profile. It's one link for who you are and what you do. Sign up at rehash.quest.com to follow along with our quest so you never miss an episode or create your own quest today. Looking ahead of the future, which aspects or areas of media do you think have untapped potential to utilize and benefit from Web3 tools? And also on the flip side too, looking at the Web3 tools that we have or just Web3 space in general, which areas of Web3 do you think have untapped potential to utilize and benefit more from media? Video from the jump. I mean, like the internet runs on video. So kind of bringing that in into crypto and playing all these sort of like Web3 games is huge. We've all been here navigating the internet on the basis of we upload stuff to YouTube servers or into the TikTok labyrinth or all that kind of stuff. So it feels like video is an extremely high use case potentially. I'm quite fond of podcasts as well. So kind of audio and all that is also quite untapped. And what if I can, something as simple as I subscribe to this podcast on Apple or Spotify that I really like, but now potentially I can meet other people who like the show. We can spin up our own community even without asking for permission from the actual show, but we can connect together as like collectors of this thing. We can launch our own things from within that space. So it's kind of the open composability and potential for the communities and all that kind of stuff. I've seen some good ideas lately as well about wouldn't it be cool to be able to prove like proof of listen or proof of collect or 
all that kind of stuff. And I listened to the last five episodes in a row. Maybe that unlocks a little badge, which gets me into the keen listener, little subreddit style group. It's anything that you can imagine. Like we've all grown up with the internet and now we can kind of play completely new games. Whereas before we're either building on our own server that was kind of closed off and you'd need to make some kind of splash on Web2 Social to invite people to come over and check out what you're doing. But now Web3, you're publishing things into a running stream of interconnected meaning and context. And so potentially your works can be discovered because let's say I have a guest who comes on on UFO and someone might discover that because they've collected a piece by that person on Mira. You know what I mean? So the kind of interrelated connections feels like a huge space. And Web3 Social in general, I feel like is going to be absolutely huge. And with Lens V2 just being announced is, is really exciting. We're kind of mapping across that via Zora and Mira across the Farcaster and sort of connecting across this entire graph. We're in the early stages of what that can look like. So I'm super excited about that. And also the kind of just Lens on its own, the fact that I can publish on any Lens app and those works show up on every app that's built on Lens is like kind of astonishing. And that my subscribers go with me to any app on Lens is hugely powerful. Getting started on Lens back in like September, 2022, like that on its own was just like, well, that's super cool. Like I can post a video to LensTube, but here it is over on Lenster and, and the other apps. And I also want to quickly shout out Orb, the, the app that's built on Lens as well, because they now have the community feature there. We're going to launch on there soon and other people have been as well. But the sort of the token gated community space, which you can do roles and permissions for, for the members of that community, really powerful things can happen there. And I guess that runs via like Autospace and creating badges based on doesn't need to be financialized basis, but it might be like showing up in a space or kind of contributing and things like that. Maybe you can earn badges and then that gives you certain access within that community. And then Guild for managing all of these like permissions for your community. The fact that these are all tools and protocols and apps and platforms built by different teams, but they all work together is magical. It really is. I, I love the Lens shout out and we're on Orb. So if you're listening and you're part of the Rehash community, go download Orb and join our community. And I know they're launching soon. Actually, by the time this episode comes out, they probably would have done this already. The ability to have public and private communities within the Orb community. So you can have public channels that everybody can see, and that's good for discoverability. And then you can also have private channels to reward your community members for certain things. So for instance, for us, if you join our Orb community, we'll be posting sneak previews of our podcast episodes ahead of time in the private channels for our members to see as a little way of just rewarding them for being part of the community and fun little thing for them to have an exclusive before it goes out to the public. So yeah, I mean, I'm totally with you on that. I think video, podcasts, more multimedia, all of the tools. I would love to see a lot of these tools working together as well. So like Guild being integrated with Lens apps, being integrated with all these other things that you said, if all of these can work in conjunction, then the possibilities are really just endless. And speaking of Web3 Socialists actually ties us nicely into our questions from the community. Our first one is from Louis, who wants to know what Web3 social feature are you most thankful for? That's a great question. Hello to Louis as well. He's a he's a friend. Free collects are awfully good. 
I would say. Foe's done well sort of building up a, a community on Lens to date and the free collect has been a big one. So you can just set it to, you need to subscribe or follow our project to mint this this free collect and that's been like super popular. So I'd say that's a, a great little one for bootstrapping a, a media project or a community via Web3 social. And so with the UFO podcast, with my friend like Ivano Salonia, who's like the art director at UFO, and we create unique posters, kind of like a concert poster for each episode. And so with each episode that comes through, there's this different sort of art NFT that you can collect. So yeah, I'd say free collects have been a huge one. Love it. We have another question from Karsten. Karsten had a few questions regarding UFO. The first is, do incentives for listeners work? How do incentives for listeners work regarding growth? And will UFO expand beyond a podcast? And then how important is branding for a podcast? Which I think he's referring to the fact that UFO generates original art for every episode, which I think is super cool. And I'm personally curious about that as well is like how do you generate the art for each episode and what's the thinking behind that so i'm sorry there, there were a lot of questions there let me know if you need me to repeat any of those yeah let me know if i forget any which i might but yeah i guess like creation of the art from from ufo like our name is inspired by the the ufo club which was a music counterculture venue from london in the mid 60s that was founded by the creators of the indica gallery and bookstore there who also founded international times which was like a counterculture newspaper publication at the time and they have famous like super psychedelic posters and designs that i was aware of from the internet so i'd seen this name ufo from those types of things so myself and Ivano salonia is my friend in amsterdam we had the idea that basically to to think of ufo the first like post that we're putting out online are like west Arnia club which is still our intention so from the jump we're like well, it'll be fun to make poster designs for every episode and to imagine that these could be like put up on a wall in a city and stuff like that and it was very helpful that it kind of gives the show a bit of a consistent feel and visual id a recognizable kind of thing we're also looking to kind of evolve those designs over time and go in waves. So the first 18 episodes have a certain vibe and then the next 18 are a little different. But I would say it's a bit of a spacey sort of theme. We're also inspired by like the photos taken by like the Voyager spacecraft from the 70s and things of the outer planets, but also looking back on Earth in 1977. It's the first image of Earth and the moon in the one image that was taken by a satellite and stuff like this. So that was a bit of the visual inspiration for what we're doing. And then in the production, we also kind of run it through a bit of an AI generative kind of brain kind of thinking as well. So that's kind of what that production looks like. Yeah. So I, I suppose like brand is, is quite important for a media project. It's good to be recognizable and to kind of have a feel, consistent vibe. So, you know, we're kind of addressing that. And sorry, circling back to what were a couple of the other questions from, from Karsten. The other questions were, how do incentives for listeners work? And then the other one is, I, I think you've touched on this a little bit already. Will UFO expand beyond a podcast? Which I can't remember if, if we had already started recording yet or not when you were talking about this. So feel free to repeat again if it was pre-record. Yeah, absolutely. So the intention that we've started to reveal now, like we've just published UFO.fm. So we have a website that's up now. So for the first time, we're kind of like just talking openly or announcing like what we're actually doing. Myself and Ivano went to ETH Tokyo 
in April. And we're kind of working away at that hackathon, building between Lens Protocol and LivePeer, and really exploring this idea that we'd had since before we launched, which is like wanting to build an on-chain radio station. From my background and experience, like from Sydney in Australia, I did many years in radio and broadcasting and a lot of experience in the community radio station at FBI there, which is the kind of like the independent station. And continually inspired by my experiences there. I feel like we all have a community radio station in our city and it really is like a meta label as the team of meta label talk about. So you have a radio station and maybe there's 50 different shows that are being produced most often by volunteers and you have 50 DJs on the station and each of them have their own world, their own show, they're super passionate about that they're producing for. But together, the radio station is greater than the sum of its parts. And I find that really inspiring. So that's kind of like the direction that we're leading in with UFO. Like we want, we're going to set up this radio station and the podcast that I'm hosting is just sort of like the first on this network. And so we have other things coming through. We also want to experiment with and explore collective curation and what that can look like in terms of, say, music programming or podcasts and radio shows that are kind of joining this network. And we can kind of play with all these different Web3 tools and, and what it looks like. But kind of getting to that other question that Carson had asked about like incentives for the audience, that's been a really exciting and fun kind of thing to play with from the jump. We collaborated with the team at Mira to be part of their pilot program for Subscribe to Collect back in November. So we launched the UFO Genesis Pass as part of that and had like a crazy response for a fairly new project at the time. I think we had about 7,800 mints, like free collects of this thing. And so the intention with like how we're building that out is, well, this is the Genesis Pass. So it'll get you access to exclusive and early content and experiences and different things into the future, which gave us this like amazing building block piece of, we have 7,800 of these things, of these tokens now created. And then we have the opportunity over time to just build for that or from the basis of that. And over time, if people become interested in what UFO is doing or they want to delve a little deeper, potentially they can collect one of these things, which I think secondary is, I don't know, a few dollars, five dollars, whatever it is. So they're still practically free months later. And so having that piece is really exciting. But then you can bounce off these different pieces as well. We have subscribers on Lens or people that are collecting the UFO open editions of the podcast that we've started minting on Zora as well. People that collect the posts on Mira. So harking back to talking about Rafa and these logic and intentionality about like building a community and having these different sort of realms of intimacy with your brand or the project or interest in it. And I feel like all these tokens and different actions in terms of collecting things and whatnot are kind of all, are all kind of going in the same direction. So as we're kind of designing UFO and what this on-chain radio station looks like, we have all these different pieces that can ideally unlock new games in terms of like interaction between ourselves and a sort of growing network of creators and curators and the audience that can get more and more involved with that project over time. So that's the plan. We're kind of playing with these things and a lot of this stuff is super new and we've been really fortunate and excited to collaborate pretty closely with the teams at Lens and Mira, Zora and all these places. So yeah, that, that's kind of kind of what we're doing. I guess it's a bit of a watch this space. Like we intend to just surprise and delight the audience going forward. 
I love all the experimentation. I love all the collabs. You guys have really done a great job with collaborating with other projects and protocols in the Web3 space that are creator adjacent or specifically designed for creators. So kudos to you for that. And with the 7,800 mints, that's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Finally, we end every episode with an explain your tweet segment. I'm just going to pull one real quick. There wasn't anything super spicy or super juicy, which now that I've come back to this explain your tweet little thing at the end, it's no one this season has any spicy tweets. And I don't know if that just goes to show that all the people that were voted on this season were just pretty like normal, steady, steady. (laughs) (laughs) not boring, just not entirely unhinged like a lot of people are. Not too spicy, yeah. which we like that. I I was just talking to Blake last episode about that, and she was like, man, people want more unhinged content, don't they? And I'm like, yeah, but also it's kind of a good strategy to not have anything too unhinged on Twitter because people will come after you. But anyway, so this one that I pulled was from September of 2022. You said, just got back to Australia after three months and have already seen snakes, spiders, koalas, possums, and horses at our new place. There's a giant snake in the roof. I have an irrational fear of snakes, like irrational. Like when I was a child in school, like in our science textbook, there would be a lot of photos. I would have to tape shut the pages with photos of snakes on them so that I wouldn't accidentally flip to them because that's how scared I was of snakes. So it's just been this lifelong irrational fear. I cannot even imagine walking around my house like having a snake in my house. Are snakes really just everywhere in Australia? Because I've never been, and this is kind of like the stereotype that people say is there's just snakes and spiders and creatures that'll kill you everywhere. But is that really true? Yeah. To a large extent, that is accurate, yes. Pretty much. I, I like, live, all, uh, like everywhere in Australia or just in certain parts of Australia? It's kind of everywhere, to be honest. God. Um, Yeah, I don't care for spiders particularly much and Australia has, I don't know, 8 out of 10 of the deadliest spiders in the world and we have, I don't know, 4 out of 5 of the deadliest snakes. So yeah, like explaining that tweet a little, with my family we were over in Europe for a few months last year traveling about and then when we got back in September we were immediately moving house to a new place and we were living very much in the country so not too far away from the small town that i'm currently living in but when we got there there were four to five diamondback pythons just living at the house they are over two meters long giant huge like this like huge fat crazy anaconda looking snakes and so that was a bit of a surreal wake-up call as we're recovering from jet lag and everything so we learned, I learned a few things about snakes. First of all, so we had horses over the back fence as well. That's why they were there. It's in koalas as kind of Australian wildlife was just like showing up because the place was kind of a bit like a farm, right? It was properly out in the country there. But as far as the snakes go, the pythons are not poisonous and they're sort of keeping away the truly dangerous like brown snakes and stuff like that that will kill you if you don't get to the hospital quick enough if you get bitten. But it was still pretty uncomfortable because in this house, it was funny, this was exactly when I was like launching UFO and starting to do the podcast and all that. So I'd be recording late night. I'd be jumping on the mics right after literally ducking under a two meter snake that was just hanging in the rafter there 
outside and the only way I could get into the house was I had to run and duck under the snake there was no other way oh and I was God, just like no. it was a bit of a awakening coming home to a very strange experience so those snakes are crazy and it was multiple times of I go to walk up the path to where we would kind of park our cars and stuff and there would be a two meter snake sitting across the path suddenly over there I have to walk back the other way so there were multiple times that I almost stepped on a giant snake to the point that you just are always looking on the ground when you're walking around. So happily now we've kind of, we've moved back into the small town nearby to where this place was, which was amazing, but it did have giant snakes. So is it just that everybody that lives in Australia has become immune to snakes and spiders? I could never, oh God, if I walked to my house and there was a snake dangling from my rafters and I was walking to the podcast, I would absolutely not make that podcast interview. Absolutely not. There's no chance. So I assume everyone who lives in Australia has to be somewhat okay with regularly encountering these creatures. Yes, yeah, something to wrap your head around. It's pretty crazy. I was, I was chatting to my friend Charlie Waterhouse from Extinction Re Rebellion, and he was like the first guest who came on UFO way, way back. And I remember because I hung out with him when I was in London, not long before we got back. So when I was like looping back with him to record one of these early episodes, he's like, hey, how's it going, man? And I was just telling him about all these snakes. I'm like, dude, you, <laughs> you would not believe what's been happening. He's having a similar astonished reaction to you. It's just the most Australian thing possible. I guess we get used to it, but also like the spiders as well. The spiders can be in your house. They can be hiding. So I used to live in the Blue Mountains outside of Sydney. And it's this old thing of every night when you go into bed, you kind of need to take the blankets off and check your bed and everything or check the room. I can I feel you just getting more and more stressed out as I explain. I, yeah, very much so. <laughs> can you tell by my body language? I'm like shrugging up and cringing. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I don't like spiders. So the kind of the protocol of you need to check your bed. And when we moved out to the Blue Mountains, the first night, there was a really dangerous spider in our bed and then never again. But the very first night when we checked it, there was like a lethal spider underneath the pillow. No one's going to come to Australia after this episode. There's also there's great white sharks and dangerous sharks at the ocean in the north of Australia. There's also dinosaurs like giant crocodiles, right? That are dinosaurs and people are just cool with it and they go swimming anyway. I wouldn't do that personally, but yeah, yeah, it's a thing. But, you know, North America has bears and stuff. So, you know what I mean? It's all relative. Yeah, it is. I live in bear country and I don't know. It's just this irrational fear of snakes that I can't get over. There's nothing I'm scared of more than snakes, even if they're not poisonous. It could still choke you out, right? Or something like it can yeah. kill you in other ways than biting you. I'll tell you what. So I have a young son as well, who's just about 18 months or two at the time. And so when there are all these giant snakes there, and imagine this, like I'm calling the kind of the estate agent for the place where I live and we're like, hey, so there's a bunch of giant snakes here. What's going on with that? And he kind of laughed me off the phone. Yeah, welcome to the bush, mate. I was like, oh, thanks for that. I thought there'd be some kind of you would help us a little bit. So then we're calling out to these various like snake catchers and handlers who can help with stuff. And so I'm calling these amazing people who this woman's answering the phone. She's oh, OK, I'm out of this town at the moment. I'm capturing a giant brown snake in someone's backyard. The brown snake can kill people straight up. She's like, I'm over here right now. Maybe I can come to your place in the afternoon kind <laughs> of thing. And she's like, oh, OK, diamond pythons. That's going to be pretty fine. So that's what she's kind of explaining. Look, they're not poisonous and all that. They're actually pretty chill. Like they want to avoid you. And also crucially, they're not hunting your son. That was a big question for me because snakes will actually like tempt 
pets out of people's houses, right? That's a danger. So if there's a little a cat or a dog or something like that, they can kind of come to the window and kind of, yeah, that's what they're trying to do. That's what a snake's trying to do, right? So this is getting scarier and scarier by the minute. <laughs> it gets worse before it gets better. Yeah. But yeah, so I was kind of like, I was just like making very clear. It's not hunting my son, correct? <laughs> and they're like, how old's your son? I don't know. He's way too big for them. Don't worry about that. If he was younger, yes, no, but it, his size, he'll be fine. So I did actually calm down a little bit when I was sure that they weren't hunting my son. <laughs> it sounds extra crazy when I say it out loud. I cannot wait to send this episode to Christina Beltramini from Lens <laughs> because we've We've had She'll this. confirm all of this. Yeah, but she gets so upset with me every time I say good things about New Zealand. And mm -hmm. Christina and I have gone into some beef over that because she thinks Australia is the best. So I can't wait to send this to her and just be like, see, I told you, this is why. I mean, Australia is the best despite all of these snakes and spiders. There's snakes that can kill you. But despite all that, it's amazing. Eventually you need to leave the Shire and, and head out into the world. Go, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose. I just realized I forgot to give you a chance to address this dramatic joke race that got you on. So I ended up tagging Andy and Triumph in the Twitter post, kind of calling them out a little bit. And Andy replied and said, in the final hour of voting, there was a scenario to coordinate a three-way tie for last place, adding two bonus guests to the season. Sadly, it required downvoting to even out some of the numbers properly, but we did it in a way to include you and make some Dow magic happen. What that three-way tie, I don't know what game Andy was playing, but that turned into a six-way tie, so clearly he wasn't in on all of it. But I just wanted to give you a chance to address that. I know you were asleep for most of it because mm -hmm. you're in Australia and it was happening in North American time zones. But if you have anything you want to say to Andy and Triumph, they're very scared that you're going to hate them forever. No, definitely not. It worked out great <laughs> with the, the wisdom of the community there. I just kind of woke up and was like, oh, wow, I got in somehow. That's cool. Yeah, I had no notion about like how it was going to go necessarily. And uh, to be honest, uh, I've been around a minute. So I kind of saw a couple down votes and I'm like, ah, oh, look, this has been like carefully massaged and ended in a six way tie. So it worked out perfectly. So no, no ill, ill feelings, but they are being kicked out of the Dow, right? We talked about that. <laughs> Well, we got to take a Dow vote on that. So you can rally oh, the troops sure, sure, and sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. And get people to vote them out. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's <laughs> just like Survivor, we vote people off the island. No, we don't really. No, it was, it was funny, right? Because I came as a sort of a wildcard entry Cinderella story because I was mistakenly nominated twice as well somehow. And then yeah. miraculously managed to, to get in in the midst of all this while I was asleep. So yeah, I was super happy to be invited to come on here. I've listened to a bunch of rehash episodes and been a fan of what you guys have been doing. So this is really cool. And now I can also join the community and contribute yes. to selecting future guests and voting and all that. So that's fun. I'm here for it. Exactly. And you're the best person to have in the community because you've interviewed so many amazing people. So you know exactly who are the best people to nominate for the podcast. And we can rally the troops and get them voted on. And hopefully there's a little less chaos next season with all the collusion and behind the scenes little scheming going on that i was very much not aware of 
Yeah, I think super cool that Rehash is built on Joke Dao. Like, I'm a huge fan of Joke Dao anyway. And these kind of like shenanigans and games that go on in the voting and potentially like alliances and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. the fact that Rehash is a podcast kind of run by a Dao is amazing, super unique. And you guys have had so many great guests on through this mechanism as well. The kind of, hey, you've been voted on, would you like to come on kind of thing is a really interesting idea. And something that we haven't even spoken on in this entire episode where we're talking about Web3 for creators and media and stuff like that. And what Rehash has been doing is like super innovative, has been working. So yeah, appreciation for that. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that coming from you as somebody who's doing similar things in the space. Huge respect to UFO as well. And all the ways that you guys have really rocked your branding, collaborating with other brands and things like that. Major kudos to you guys as well. Before you go, Nick, I know we've already gone way over time. Please tell people where they can talking find you snakes. if they <laughs> talking about snakes. I know we'll have to cut out some of the snake stuff. I don't think people want to listen to 30 minutes of snake talk, but tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you and then feel free to plug away at UFO and any of the other things you're working on right now as well. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for that. You can find me at Holland's on all the Web3 social apps, pretty much. UFO double underscore club on Twitter. You can find the project at ufo.fm. I suppose all the links can kind of go from there and you can find the podcast Mints are on Zora, ufo.mirror.xyz is where our blog is at. Yeah, I mean, you can find UFO everywhere, pretty much. So probably heading to the website, that's a good place to go. And you can find me on Twitter at Nick underscore Hollands, where I'm talking about all the kind of stuff that we're talking about in this episode, pretty much. So I'm just trying to um, share what we're doing as we're doing it and sharing stuff that I think is interesting. So yeah, come find me. I'm out here always down for conversations and potentially guests coming on UFO as well. So hit us up. And keep an eye as we're building this on-chain radio station. So welcome to come and check it out. Super cool, super innovative stuff. We will be sure to link all of those in the show notes to make it easy for people to find. Thanks again so much, Nick, for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in as always. And we'll be back again next Thursday with another episode of Rehash. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Rehash. Rehash is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Diana Chen, and sponsored by Lens, Livepeer, Quest, and Lore. Rehash is also supported by our community of NFT holders who curate our guest lineup each season. To get involved, head over to our website at rehashweb3.xyz and collect this episode as an NFT. Anyone who collects an episode becomes part of the Rehash community and will be able to nominate guests for future seasons. To learn more about how to become a guest on the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash podcast. And to learn more about sponsoring the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash sponsor. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at rehashweb3 or on Lens at rehash.lens. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.